just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. On today's show, we have Torbjörn Bojansson, the CEO of Arcane Crypto. We're going to discuss details about the company, how they raise capital, team, and how they allocate capital. Arcane Crypto develops and invests in projects focusing on Bitcoin and digital assets. Let's start by giving us some background about yourself, please. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me. So I discovered Bitcoin back in 2013 while I was studying economics. And at first, I, as most people, I dismissed it. But it caught my interest and I had a very keen interest also in the question, why this money? I had kind of recently ex- discovered the different schools of thought around the question. So I actually decided, well, maybe I can do my master thesis on Bitcoin, apply these different schools of thought, because all of them are trying to look like 10,000 years back in history to find origins of money. While with Bitcoin, we have this strange object, which seems to contradict both of the main theories, because it was clearly not backed by any government, but there was also clearly no kind of uh, intrinsic value in the sense that you could eat it or live in it. And yet it had value. So that was my entry point into Bitcoin. I fell into the rabbit hole been in the rabbit hole ever since, I very pleasantly realized that a lot of the mathematics that people claim is really, really hard when it comes to cryptography is actually the same linear algebra that I had a lot of while studying economics. Also, the way of thinking around these types of systems is very similar to how we learn game theory, how you start from kind of first order assumptions and then kind of derive larger systems. So I really fell in love trying to analyze and understand mainly Bitcoin, started reading up on the development of consensus protocols all the way back to the 80s. I guess I spent more or less at least four or five hours or three, four hours a day reading up. I graduated in 2014, right at the crash, Bitcoin come crashing down from euphoric highs of $1,000 each. So there was no job opportunities for me. So it was a hobby for a long time. But I had a couple of um, articles in media. And then that kind of started the ball rolling where when I got a couple of uh, interviews on TV around kind of the 2014 hype and then it got quiet. Fast forward 2017, everyone wanted to hear about Bitcoin again. I quickly became the go-to guy all things crypto in Norway. I started consulting anything from uh, private companies, uh, public sector, uh, both the central bank, the Ministry of Finance. And I was thinking, well, maybe I'll, I was working in a consultancy firm at the time. And I think it was, hey, maybe I'll just build this out as a department within the firm. Uh, I was making enough to kind of justify my own salary uh, towards the peak there. Then the market collapsed again. I was more bullish than ever because the previous cycle of the hype driving in interest and investment leading to the building out of better infrastructure had happened yet again. During the hype of 2017, there was no institutional infrastructure. But due to the hype, you had CME launch its futures at the very peak. You had Fidelity building out their custody. You had LMAX, a big player in traditional FX, building out LMAX Digital. You had all these projects being started because of the hype. You had the Lightning Network, which was finally uh, kind of live on testnet. Uh, so I, like during the spring of 2018, I couldn't care less about the prices coming down. Uh, I was more bullish than ever. And then I got in contact with two Norwegian kind of high net worth family offices who had been looking at the space for a while. They had found it very interesting, but also too euphoric during the autumn of 2017. So they had kind of been on the fence, but they really wanted to build a presence in the sector and that when we got together and decided to start Arcane Crypto, where I'm now the CEO. Awesome. So would you say the longer you hold Bitcoin or the more years you're in the space, that the less you look at the price? No, no. <laughs> I wish I could say that. Uh, and I must say, it's actually, for me, it's almost the opposite. It feels idiotic. A lot of people assume I'm filthy rich because I discovered Bitcoin so early. I mean, I think it was around $60 the first time I seriously considered buying. But I was so skeptical. And the strange thing is that even when I did my master thesis, I realized, oh, shit, this can become really big. But I didn't really understand the investment case until actually 2016. 2016 was the first time I started investing in Bitcoin. I bought Bitcoin back in 2014. 
I also made sure to travel around all of Europe, spending my bitcoins on bars, on uh, <laughs> different motels, uh, because that was what it was about. It was scanning the QR codes and getting your beers in uh, Kreuzberg in Berlin. Very similar to how you see people traveling to El Salvador today. <laughs> and, yep, yep. So, yeah, no, I only understood it in 2016. And by the time I had like, a student loan, I had a mortgage, <laughs> a car loan, so not too much free liquidity. And the thing that is fascinating to me is that it's still hard not to look at the price. And even though intellectually, what I'm looking for is the adoption. What I'm looking for is the momentum that is building new infrastructure. And still, I can't help but get this feeling of uncertainty when the price grinds down for long. I know it's just an unemotional reaction and I try to kind of mind over body, but it's I guess we're still just animals. Uh, there's an animal spirit in everyone. That's true. <laughs> I agree there. No matter what, even when it goes euphoric all the way up, doing multiples quickly, you're still thinking like, wow, you know, <laughs> it can go up a little bit more, right? Yeah. No, actually on that, I, I guess it's only one <laughs> one happening. But like, in, I have an interview in the Norwegian main financial newspaper in December 2017 with the headline, like the dot-com bubble, basically. Point, and it was obvious by the time, I think, uh, but that this couldn't last forever. It was just too euphoric. But my main point has always been that, yes, there can be bubbles, but that doesn't mean that this isn't here to stay. That doesn't mean that zero is where it's going to end. Well, for some projects, it definitely is. But <laughs> there's a lot of also network effects and adoption happening. So I always try to not be on the camp of like it's going to be a straight journey to the moon because I don't I truly don't believe that but uh, also really highlighting that there is true transformational potential here and I guess what really caught my interest when I did my master thesis was the realization that Bitcoin was the first digital bear asset ever so up until Bitcoin all of the digital assets you could hold was in the form of a claim on someone so if you have money in the bank you have a claim on that specific bank and claims are inherently linked to jurisdictions, which means that regardless of how many mainframes you get rid of for international bank transfers, how, regardless of how modern you get your cloud infrastructure, as long as it's a claim-based asset, if you want to send that across the world and crossing jurisdictions, that is bound to be kind of expensive, slow. There's no way around a lot of frictions. Because if I had sent money from Norway to, say, the U.S., the receiver in the U.S. wants to end up with a claim on his bank in the U.S., not my bank in Norway. Bitcoin solves this very beautifully by being this digital bear asset. The value is in the object itself. You can discuss what the right value is, but it has a market price. So if I buy Bitcoin in Norway, send it to the U.S., and then sell it, you have final settlement. And you can have that on a Sunday. And there's no credit risk. There's volatility, but there's no credit risk in Bitcoin. And that was to me like, this is like a true zero to one innovation. This is absolutely massive. Of course, at the time, it costed at least 10% to exchange into Bitcoin from fiat and at least 10% to exchange out. And you can only do it on Mt. Cox, this Japanese-based exchange that <laughs> got hacked or, or maybe it was an inside job. And also the throughput on the Bitcoin blockchain could handle like, was it like three or seven transactions per second? But still fundamentally, that core use case, like that was the zero to one that really caught my interest. And What's happened since, which is super interesting, is that the cost of exchanging in and out has really been decimated. Now you can get in and out paying basis points if you're set up the right way on the right platforms. You have a market that's open 24-7, 365 days a year all over the world. So you have liquidity in South Africa, in Korea, in the US, in Norway. So you always have a, like an open market between the local currency and Bitcoin. And with Lightning solving or being on the path to solve a lot of the scalability issues, suddenly it becomes cheap to exchange in and out, and you can handle a throughput of millions of transactions per second. On the one hand, this is something I've been talking about ever since I did my thesis, and especially like ever since kind of start working in 2018. But I still feel it's very relevant, although it hasn't played out yet. And I still feel like this year or next year will really be the year for Bitcoin as a payment rail. But uh, we'll see. We're still early is what you're saying. We're still definitely <laughs> early. And I'm also pointing out the fact that it's super interesting and more people should do this. Go back to the Bitcoin talk forum 
from 2013, 2012, 2011. And a lot of the concepts that were discussed there are only now being played out. So I remember when NFTs were called colored coins, when they were built on a counterparty sitting on top of Bitcoin. I remember in 2013 when Nasdaq piloted shares issued on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. A lot of like the concepts that now have found their traction in the form of NFT and DeFi, etc. Staking, for that matter, there aren't new discussions. These things have been brewing for a long time. And what that tells us is that those who really understand these types of transformational paradigm shifts can see very early the potential. Where they typically miss is that they are too optimistic on how fast it can happen. But they're also typically right on the, like, the long-term possibility. And we see that's kind of throughout history with Nikola Tesla foreseeing cell phone and video communication like a hundred years before the iPhone, right? Where he described that when this wireless technology is at maturity, you'll be able to have this tiny device that you can put in your pocket and you can video call people. And this was like people didn't have phones at the time. So <laughs> definitely that was interesting. I actually just watched that uh, a little while ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. I just had to watch a rerun over the holidays and catch up on that. But I guess let's go into what arcane crypto is, right? And at the basics, what are you guys doing? Yeah, no, so when we founded the company, well, basically we looked at the industry and we found it to be extremely fragmented. We saw a lot of interesting startups out there, a lot of smart people really hacking on on their idea. But just it looked like a lot of this would benefit from standing closer together. So, and also the investors had a lot of experience from investing in other more mature industries where synergies in the value chains through consolidation are kind of very common to try to seek to realize. So when we launched Arcane, our idea was to build a portfolio of different services, spanning the value chain for financial services around Bitcoin and digital assets, to bring those together so that we could realize the synergies and also the robustness of having kind of a broader portfolio so that you get the diversification effect, right? And we wanted to do that by positioning as a center of gravity initially using my brand in Norway initially, together with the investor's brand and kind of recognition to attract the best people and the best projects so that we could kind of filter through and, and choose what projects to go with to build the initial operational experience, to build a presence, to build a position, to build the kind of the, the basis from which we could take the next step. We're right now in the middle of doing that next step, which is Taking this portfolio we have today, we're covering a brokerage, hedge fund, market research, we piloted payments, Bitcoin mining. We're also invested in an interbank market, building out kind of market for tier one banks with the likes of Boney and State Street, two of the banks that have kind of announced their LOIs signed with, a, with Pure. So we have like this portfolio today, but even the fully owned subsidiaries are running on different technology stacks with different brands, with different product teams. That means that like we, we have the unified ownership, but we don't have a unified offering. What we're doing right now is we're building out on Google Cloud the infrastructure to bring the research, the asset management, and the trading together so that we can have one platform for users to learn, trade, and invest. So that they can have one account where they read our market research. And if they want to trade, they can do that. Maybe we need to ask for some more KYC documents, source of fund documents, but we it'll still be the same user account. And actually, if we need to prove the knowledge of the investor, we can use the track record of what they've read as a part of that. Kind of, this is typically regulatory requirements like MIFID II you have in traditional finance. So we're building out that platform right now. We're in that consolidation process where we're kind of taking this portfolio that we've had like since 2018 until the end of the last year. The three first years has been like, operating as an investment company, M&A activity. Now we're turning the company into a tech and product company, building the platform. We're going to launch research first and then quickly and iteratively add the other services to that platform. And then the last phase of our kind of three-step plan or kind of very high level is that we will open up our API. So we're building the platform now with intention to open up so that third parties can consume our services. So 
We believe in a future where every financial institution, be it a payment company, a bank, a neobank, what have you, will have some crypto services. But they will not develop it themselves. They will do it through partnerships. And while PayPal can do a bespoke integration and acquire Paxful and kind of really put the duct tape and glue together, we still believe there's a massive opportunity in building really high-quality APIs, really robust modular components there, and to offer like a top-quality platform that others can integrate with. So that a bank that wants to offer crypto can do that by becoming a client of ours. They can sell that to their clients and they can integrate that. Also, we expect to bring other services, so services from others, onto our platform so that they can sell to our users. We don't expect to have all of, like, so for instance, right now, we have a hedge fund managed by Eric Wall, very recognized in, in the crypto industry. We expect in the future to have more hedge funds available, but we don't expect to be kind of managing all of them ourselves, but rather be, if we have the user, if we have the interest, why not kind of sell a complementary fund, a different type of exposure, and then have a cut for that? So that's the last stage, um, which will follow the stage we're at now, where we are building out the platform. And yeah. So when it comes to the research first, what is the type of research you guys are providing clients? It's mainly researching trends in the market and a very core focus on it being data-driven. So we're both using open data sources. And then this is the beauty of the crypto space. Not only is the blockchains open, so you have a ton of data available there, but also a lot of exchanges provide you their data for free. So you can scrape the data or you can kind of download the data or work with kind of platforms that have built good aggregation tools to get that data. So there's tons and tons of data that is almost freely available. And there's a lot of people out there that are really smart and thinking a lot about what's happening, but they don't know how to use data. So the data, to a large degree, just sits there in these databases and these dashboards. And what we're doing is we're kind of combining the topics of the day and then trying to figure out what is the data points that can help us understand this. We're also working with several big companies in the industry doing kind of industry reports. We did a massive report on the Lightning Network and adoption there. We have done a big report on the trading ecosystem on behalf of LMAX, worked with Bitstamp, looking into Bitcoin as a collateral asset. So in other industries, it's like you have a lot of service providers providing these types of reports. And in crypto, it's been a big gap, especially with my background as, as a consultant before starting Arcane. It was like very obvious to me, like there's something missing here. And uh, that is kind of making the research accessible, making making it easier to, to find the signal. There's so much noise out there and data really helps you do that. So, yeah. Well, when it comes to finding trends, like can you kind of break that down to what trends you're seeing right now or kind of an example of what someone could expect? So some of it is, yeah, as you say, kind of the larger trends and pointing out, for instance, the institutionalization that is happening. That's actually more of the qualitative oriented insights and then kind of almost kind of sprinkled with the data. But on that, for instance, we are following the open interest on CME, the futures marketplace where you have all of the institutional capital getting their exposure. Of course, a little bit distorted after the ETFs was approved. But And then we compare that to development on, say, the non-regulated, more retail-oriented futures market. So by tracking the volume differences there, you could very clearly, for instance, see when Paul Tudor Jones initially came in, like you saw a spike in the open interest corresponding to his allocation, actually. That has enabled us to see the different premiums, how that is different. Kind of not only base our analysis on the headlines you see in the media, but also see, is this actually reflected in the trading activity of these clients? Are we seeing kind of sustained and building growth of this type of exposure from institutions? And then we are at least discussing and trying to infer what does that mean for the next step for this in, uh, industry? We're also a lot more short-term, where our analysts have successfully kind of identified periods where it's been very high leverage in the market and increased risk of sharp pullbacks and flag that early on. And then a lot is also trying to shed light on topics from, for instance, on stable coins and how to like what is actually going on. So not the clearest answer. You would have gotten a much clearer answer talking to kind of the research team and uh, bending our head of research. That's fine. 
So you have the re- research department, and then you mentioned once they're kind of on board, the ability to be able to also trade. So right now, as I said, researchers can stand alone. Then we have the kind of OTC trading for premium clients, mainly in Norway, offering also a concierge service for, for those who want to do larger NFT purchases. It's fascinating to see how the traditional art community is actually really embracing NFTs. And you see people who are not interested in crypto, but who are big in both as artists, but also as investors in art, buying these NFTs and they need someone to hold their hand. We do that as a kind of a premium offering licensed by the Norwegian FSA. And we have a retail exchange operating out of Sweden, licensed by the Swedish FSA. What we're doing on the platform is we kind of build, as exactly as you say, we're going to use research as the gateway drug, <laughs> as the customer acquisition tool, what can be sold or, or where we can kind of distribute it globally. There's no license, there's no regulation on that. And then once people are in and they have an interest, we're going to have, it's going to be a fairly standard training. So there's like, if you look at a lot of the service providers, you can tell that they were starting to build back in 2011, because although they have tens of millions of users, their app is not reliable enough. It's not the quality we'd expect from 2022. So building now, of course, we can leverage the best tools, newest tools available on cloud infrastructure, fully hosted so that we don't need a big DevOps team, for instance, and we can take some learning. And uh, but, but on the training, we don't expect to have anything like unique. And to be honest, the trading is very much commoditized. Yep. You buy a Bitcoin, whether you buy that Bitcoin on Kraken, Coinbase, Bitstamp, Luno. I mean, that list goes on. Yes, there might be some tiny differences, but I, it's more or less the same experience. So that's not where you differentiate. It's when you choose your bank, you don't choose it on the basis that you can pay. You take that for granted. You choose this on the basis of you want to have investment products or Mortgage is important. So we view research as one of our differentiating products, which will make us interesting as a platform. And then our bet is that once you're actually with us, you'll find it easier to just trade with us. And we expect that we will be able to execute well enough to, to be able to compete with an end user experience comparable to, say, Coinbase or some of these others. So OTC desk for NFTs, you said, right? Yeah, so the OTC desk that we have today is for both crypto coins and NFTs. Basically, if you do a large order, our brokers, they will source it for you. They will help you. They will hold your hand. And also on the custody as well, we do tailored custody. So we have had several Norwegian investors who were very early in Bitcoin. Uh, some of them have been using, say, Coinbase Prime for custody. And what they realize is that if they get hit by a bus, their children are not going to see that money. Because there's so many video calls and you have to stand on one foot while you show your passport that it's going to be so hard for them to prove that they are the ones who should inherit that money. So what we're doing is that we're working with these people and figuring out, okay, so what policy do you want for your custody? So then some of them say, like, I want to have full access, but I also want the combination of my three kids and my wife to have access. Or I want this lawyer together with this friend and as long as the clients are large enough, we can give them that private banking kind of white glow service. And on the platform, of course, we're building automation so that we can really scale to mass use. But to add that level of uh, extra support, if you like, and follow-up, is extremely important. There are so many really wealthy people who want exposure to this sector. And whether they pay a couple of percentages or a couple of basis points doesn't matter. That's the difference between buying before or after lunch. This market is so volatile. So they don't care about choosing the cheapest offering. They care about choosing an offering they can trust. And if you know anyone who's above 50 and trades, you'll see that they often do that on phone. They call their broker. They want to chat with someone. And they're sending millions per trade. Like millions of euros per trade. And uh, then you can actually afford shutting with them. Uh, so it's a market segment that I think is kind of falling between the cracks in the sense that they are well taken care of in traditional finance that still don't offer any crypto exposure or they're really bad at doing that. And then you have 
the whole DeFi space just running ahead on the one side, and then you have kind of the mass platforms really going for retail and the smaller investor, which means that these guys who are like in the high net worth range are left there a little bit in the middle, expected to figure it out themselves, not really having the time to do that, but still having enough money that there's money to be made from, from serving them. So when it comes to your, I guess you have a hedge fund arm too, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Kind of what is your strategy there? Yeah, so on the strategy of the hedge fund, I have to be a little bit vague. That's compliance reasons. Uh, it's, it's a hedge fund for professional investors only. It's a reverse solicitation only as well. So, so those who invest, they have to kind of we have to have a paper trail that they reached out to us. So it's managed by by Eric Wall, who is one of the most recognized kind of multi-project experts in the industry, and is very deep into the crypto community. He has great technical understanding, but he has also a great knowledge of a lot of the different projects that are going out there. He built his brand by pointing out a lot of weaknesses. Like He became known as the altcoin slayer. He was the one who sat down and looked at IOTA back when IOTA was like a top five coin and realized, that, wait, wait a second, there's one, one coordinator here. There's one computer that can go down and the whole system goes down. Wrote a medium post on that. And I think it was like half the market cap, a couple of like $800 million or something was wiped over the matter of a couple of days, if I remember correctly. What he's doing in the fund is he's using his insight and knowledge and also information from different projects to actively manage a mainly long exposure. The fund is intended to be a one-stop offering for those who want exposure to the sector who can go and buy Bitcoin if that's what they want, but still could do better. So that's about how much I can sell. When it comes to the all different we'll call it all coins or whatever, the stack beyond uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, I mean, where do you see that market going over the next three to five years? And how should investors look at maybe what to get into and some certain characteristics? That's a really good and really tough question. So personally, I think when it comes to these types of phenomenon, like, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, like the whole space here, you just have to realize that no one can write a proof on a piece of paper that Bitcoin is secure. No one can write a proof on a piece of paper that Solana will overtake Ethereum. So you can have a lot of good arguments. You can have a lot of like, you can look at, oh, this technology seems more promising. But these are technology phenomena, network phenomena. And the only thing you can truly look at is how long have they stayed here without dying. Basically, the Lindy effect. So if you have something that stayed there for really long, and it hasn't died yet, and it has even grown, it's more likely that it will continue to grow. The Lindy effect is basically that the expected rest life of, say, a technology like Bitcoin is proportional to the life it has already lived. With that lens, it's clear that Bitcoin has the strongest position in the ecosystem by far. A lot of people think of it as an application. It's going to be outdated. We don't drive around in 4Ts anymore. While in reality, it's an infrastructure. We do run it on asphalt. The electricity we have in our world is exactly the same electricity as the first people that got electricity in their houses, although the applications are, are very different. Then the question is, which other projects have shown the same type of Lindy effect, ability to stay like this X factor? And to me, it seems that Ethereum is approaching that stage. But apart from Ethereum, all of the others are too young. None of the top 10 projects when I, like back in 2011 were there in 2017. Very few of the top 10 projects in 2017 are on top 10 today. So you have a lot of those projects that have a kind of time in the spotlight and then falls out. And what makes it so difficult is that there's a ton of super interesting projects out there where it's impossible to justify the valuations of the token. So... IPFS as a technology for a different way of pointing to data that is stored, creating a decentralized cloud, if you like, is super interesting. To add a token for incentive onto that, that, which is Filecoin, super interesting. Whether the current valuation of Filecoin can be justified? 
I mean, I haven't done analysis in a while, but Falcon used to be one of the really hot coins a couple of years back. OTC, right? Well, yeah, one of those I actually did an analysis of where I tried to assume that what if it takes even 50% of the storage market of like Dropbox, AWS, etc. And if they have the same revenue, and I tried to do a discount cash flow, it's like it was orders of magnitude, like the valuation of the token was like orders of magnitude higher. And I was like this. It's a perfect short candidate. Of course, it went 10x further up. <laughs> because the problem is that all of these tokens right now are trading not on the fundamental value. With Bitcoin, the fundamental value is the shared belief that it can become digital gold. There is no real fundamental value in Bitcoin, which is actually, in Bitcoin's case, the powerful thing. But the question I'm asking myself, how many of these other coins can, in the long run, sustain a monetary premium? if they are supposed to be kind of utility tokens. How many of these algorithmic stable coins that are non-collateralized can get how many billions in market cap before they have to implode? How long can Hex have a scheme where they incentivize people to lock up their funds so they can get a really high interest so that you can make a shortage in the market so they can make the price go up so that people are happy to lock their... Like, there's so many of these. There's so much froth. So... To the conclusion, what's going to happen? I think it'll go on for a little longer. I think it's very similar to 2017 in that parts of the market is experienced FOMO, which makes the system more and more fragile. I think that is what we're seeing in DeFi and in NFTs, where profits are reinvested, money is not taken off the table. And the more you reinvest these uh, funds, the more you leverage, you add through yet another hoop in the DeFi ecosystem, the more fragile it becomes. I think DeFi and NFTs are here to stay long-term, but I think the FOMO we're seeing there is kind of making the system fragile. I think the FOMO we're seeing around Bitcoin is really driving a lot of, it's almost like creating escape velocity, making it more likely that it will, will succeed. Of course, there's a, an element of that happening around DeFi as well. But in terms of kind of the balance, you see this with like, you know, when Citibank is hiring a team of 200 people to, to build up their digital asset arm, they're going to build that for Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum. They're not going to build that for like uh, Shina Ibu. <laughs> they're not going to build that <laughs> for Terra. They're like, so I think we will continue for a bit longer to see more and more people being drawn into NFTs, to DeFi. Because they read about the stories, you have more celebrities coming in. You will see more momentum. You will see higher prices. But that will eventually crash, exactly as the ICO bubble crashed. ICOs are still something that people do, but uh, not as euphoric as in 2017. The big question is, of course, how will that impact Bitcoin and Ethereum? And I think there's a fairly high probability that both Bitcoin and Ethereum can valuation-wise be pulled down with a broader correction or bear market, uh, if you like. So I guess this was a very long way to say it'll be volatile. <laughs> and most of the hot top projects today will be gone in five years' time, but Bitcoin and Ethereum. Wow. So if someone wants to make a diversified basket, right, and they're, and they're trying to underwrite maybe 10 to 20 projects that they want to put in their portfolio, yeah. I mean, what are some suggestions on how they even go about picking ones outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum? That's just exactly, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we're offering. And then the, the, the performance is only when we outperform Bitcoin. No, um, joke aside, I think a useful mental model for me is I, I think about Bitcoin as saving. What I'm, like, so Bitcoin is something I buy on a dollar cost average. In like I set aside a tiny bit of money in Bitcoin over time. It's really volatile, but I, I'm very confident that it's here to stay. You could view Ethereum in the same category and maybe do a 70-30 split type of thing. Personally, I view Ethereum, I view Binance token, a lot of these projects as investments. But investments that have like any investment right now, a lot of retail investors and a lot of free liquidity slushing around. So, I mean, it's really hard to invest in stocks as well these days due to the high valuations. But but then there's a lot of projects that are interesting that could definitely thrive next to Bitcoin and Ethereum or be a hedge to some degree that they choose a different technological trade-off that there might be some weaknesses 
that make some of these other projects succeed. And then you have the like momentum trading, call it speculation part, where there's a ton of projects where you don't believe in them in the long term, but you believe that like this can be a hype. Like whether that's Dogecoin, but you have like the gambling bucket. So there's a savings bucket, that's an investment bucket, that's a gambling bucket. And then it's the last one, which is scams, which is like is a you definitely should stay away from. How you spread between the investment, saving, and gamble is kind of up to personal preferences. But personally, and this is, I mean, there's no universal truth to this, but I it really helps me to value my other crypto investments in Bitcoin terms. With my goal being to accumulate more Bitcoins, and then I see the other allocations more as a trade and a shorter term trade. And Bitcoin as the same way when you trade, like if you trade in the stock market, you measure in dollars how much you made. If you trade in crypto market, you should measure in Bitcoin how much you made. At least that's my mental model. The really hard thing is that yes, DeFi is here to stay, NFTs are here to stay, devaluation stuff through the roof. They can go higher and they'll probably will. For NFTs, 90% of the, the tokens will fall more than 90% from whatever peak they end up having. So two 90%, right? They'll go down 90% and you'll think that's over and they'll go down another 90%, right? Yeah, that's the funny thing, right? Where when people see something that has fallen a lot, they, they kind of think, think of it from the top to the bottom. They kind of forget that <laughs> the last 90% fall doesn't matter too much for the kind of total, but it's... Psychologically, it's a, it's a tough one when you encounter it. Well, how does Bitcoin kind of get integrated into everyday payments? And how does that work with the legacy system? Yes, so, so that is really where I think the big next frontier is. And I think it's really flying under the radar. So I think it was today, it was finally announced. It's been known in the market for a while that Cash App, they announced now that they've integrated Lightning. PayPal have integrated Bitcoin and you can initially as a closed loop, but now we can withdraw and deposit. Revolut has integrated Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies where you can deposit and withdraw. In the past, you could only send money from PayPal to PayPal, from Venmo to Venmo. So we had closed loops. There was no way to send money from PayPal to Venmo to Revolut to Cash App. But now that these platforms allow for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency deposits and withdrawals, Suddenly, you can use Bitcoin and or another cryptocurrency as the payment rail where you can send money from Cash App to Revolut to PayPal. When you do that on-chain, the fees are too high, or at least in periods. And it doesn't scale really well, and you have the slowness of settlement. So I think Lightning being integrated to Cash App is a key differentiator. And you also see this in El Salvador where they have kind of introduced Bitcoin as a unit of like a legal tender where the app the government has provided, Chibio, has Lightning integration. That's what enables you to pay for your burger on, on McDonald's instantly via Bitcoin. But since it's Bitcoin and it's over Lightning, that is compatible, interoperable with Cash App now which is interoperable with Strike. Strike is another US startup uh, having integrated kind of open banking APIs with, with like, And I think that integration with open banking is very important. Once you have a dollar balance with Cash App, once you have a dollar balance in your bank and you have that tied or linked to a service provider like Strike, you can suddenly have an app where you scan a QR code and you don't even have to know it's like a Bitcoin payment. It's the app that on your behalf figure out, oh, this is a Bitcoin QR code. So you can reserve the fiat amount, like the dollar amount, the euro amount, the Norwegian kroner amount on your bank account and pay the Bitcoins on your behalf as a pure backend operation. And then the receiver can have that exchange into their currency of choice. They can keep it as Bitcoin or have it exchanged. So then the question is, why, why do I think Bitcoin will take this role? So first of all, I have to admit, I'm not certain it'll be Bitcoin that takes this role. This was the part of the pitch from Ripple. They really wanted XRP to be that digital bear asset that you buy, send, and sell. Why didn't XRP succeed? Despite giving $11 million to MoneyGram and investing $60 million or something. And the reason was that there was no demand for XRP. There was no substantial organic liquidity all around the world for XRP. 
So they had to try to bootstrap the market and create a market where there were none. Bitcoin is the most soft after the most liquid of the cryptocurrencies all over the world. That means that the spread is the lowest. It means that the efficiency of exchanging in and out is the highest. Every cryptocurrency exchange service will at least have Bitcoin. Some of them will also have Ether and Litecoin. You'll never find an exchange service that doesn't have Bitcoin. So it's the most ubiquitous. And the network effect around it means that this will is likely to amplify. So if your whole flow is from fiat into Bitcoin and into fiat again, minimizing the cost of exchanging and efficiency is really key to the economic viability of that flow. And then it's the combination of liquidity, which seems to be kind of ever increasing for Bitcoin, combined with the scalability of Lightning, creating this interoperability where the earlier were none. Like on the internet, you can use whatever web browser you like and still browse the same way. Like you, when you send an email, you don't ask, are you using Gmail? Because I have to send you a Gmail. But if you send money, you have to ask, do you use Revolut? <laughs> do you use PayPal? With Bitcoin as a layer of interoperability, you can just say, what's your Bitcoin address? And they don't care about the service provider. It can be regulated in another country. It doesn't have to be compliant in both countries. You can use one that's compliant in your country. But as I said, stablecoins is the main contender. So on the one hand, stablecoins have the benefits. So like if you're transferring fiat, why not use a dollar denominator and remove the currency risk? Yes, Lightning is, well, Lightning fast, but they're still... Like you have to have a more efficient hedging. There's still some volatility you need to hedge out. The main problem I see with the stable coins is that they are, at least the big ones, are centralized, which means that you have a lot of regulatory uncertainty and you have counterparty risk. I've been surprised how long it has taken governments to crack down on stable coins, basically being e-money operating as if e-money regulations doesn't work. The fact that they are doing KYC and all the checks when they issue and then let it, let it be used the way people want and then check on redemption and don't freeze if there's a criminal transaction in between, I don't think that will be accepted much longer. I mean, it's an open question. I'm not saying it's good that regulators will clamp down on it, but I think they definitely will. And the reason is that there is a door to knock. It's centralized. There's a company behind it. It might be hard to find that company. The company might be good at finding uh, exotic jurisdictions. But I think that is a challenge for stablecoins, at least. And the other is also compliance-wise, where just receiving a stablecoin, there's a counterparty risk. And even if it's small, it's uncomfortable. I've, as the CEO in Arkin, in several occasions, I've been asked whether we wanted to be paid in Bitcoin or use the T. And... Personally, I don't have any issue with USDT, but for a large sum of money, even though I would be extremely surprised if USDT included uh, kind of upon receiving it, it's always felt more comfortable and cleaner to accept the Bitcoin and have that exchanged. Because then I could always tell the board, like, well, we accepted the Bitcoin, but the price actually collapsed at the point of receiving. But if I accepted USDT and some U.S. authorities issued a massive fine for something and the company went bust. It's, it's a question of whether I assess like, that counterparty risk. So in the end, if Bitcoin is liquid enough, if the hedging is efficient enough, and the programmability on Lightning, the scalability there is good enough, it doesn't really matter whether you use a dollar-denominated or Bitcoin-denominated payment rail like as a, to the medium that carries the value. And right now, it seems like most of the innovation is trying to build it around Bitcoin. And I mean, it's really hard also for the, like, Revolut and PayPal haven't added stablecoins. And it's even directly in competition with their own product. And it's compliance-wise much more murky, especially as an e-money company, to add that token that might be deemed as an other company's e-money. So it's much more comfortable for these companies to add Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and stay away from the stablecoins. If they're so worried about counterparty risk, is it just because they're digital? I guess historically, we've, we've been on a cash-based system, right? Yeah, physical cash. Yeah, physical cash. <laughs> and when it transfers party to party, right, there's typically never the thought of a counterparty risk. There's, the government's not monitoring where it's going per se. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now we're in crypto, and all of a sudden, I feel like we got to say, oh, 
now we have counterparty risk, but it like it's always been here. So I'm saying is like, is it because it's digital and they can regulate? They want to say it that way, or like how is it different? Yes, I, I think so. But I think the macro context, and this is nothing to do with crypto initially, has been a massive push towards surveillance over the last decade, especially in finance. So it is becoming harder and harder to open a normal bank account. The process becomes longer and longer to open a cryptocurrency exchange account becomes like half a year process. <laughs> I feel like my job is mainly to do KYC processes. I spend so much time and they're always different. And this isn't because of crypto. When finance became more digital, it became easier to try to push surveillance on financial transactions, and the illusion that you could regulate away criminal activity as if there will be less narcotic use due to the kind of older regulations has led to kind of just adding more and more layers of it. And you see this resulting in, so when the World Bank points out the main reason that you have 2 billion people in the world that are unbanked, they don't blame technology or lack of uh, access to technology. They explicitly say it's mainly due to strict regulation, KYC, AML regulation, which means that if you don't have kind of a fixed address, a fixed job, etc., you're unable to open a bank account because the big banks are de-risking. And what is really perverse there is that in a liberal democracy, we try to structure everything so that you are innocent until proven guilty. We try to minimize type one errors. We, we're willing to let guilty people go free just to make sure that we don't take an innocent person and sentence them. But when it comes to the financial system and the policing, we're telling the banks that if just one person, if you just help one person facilitate some money laundering and we get you doing that, you'll get a massive fine. If you block a hundred people that are high risk, low value to you because they are in the industry that maybe it's foreign, maybe it's like some other industry, doesn't make much money for you, but it's higher risk, that's fine. So what's happening is that you see massive de-risking in the form of minimizing type 2 errors. You have millions of people, actually on the global scale, billions of people being excluded from the financial system just because they are higher risk. So the long answer is, yes, the world used to be a lot freer. We used to have fairly strict protections against surveillance on every front, and in particular in finance over the last years, it's been pushing harder and harder towards the surveillance state. So do you think like uh, DeFi ultimately is all KYC'd or there's going to be two parts of it where there's going to be, let's call it the underbank that doesn't want to go through KYC? <laughs> I, I mean, uh, how can there be a real D in the DeFi if someone can collect the KYC? <laughs> Well, that's it's open finance, we'll call that. And then there's an open finance that's regulated and a DeFi that's not regulated, right? Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I think there'll be two parallel systems, at least for a while. I think there'll be the part where it's just running ahead and not giving a fuck and kind of <laughs> fully embracing the borderless global internet. Yeah. For better or worse. At the same time, in Arcane, we are really trying to position ourselves as a bridge between the traditional financial system and the digital asset ecosystem. That means that we have to be a partner that banks can be willing to work with, which means that that's why we have a license and approval from the Norwegian and Swedish FSA. They have checked our KYC policies. They have checked how we do KYC. So, and it's a massive potential for that part of the industry as well. I think on a, say, multi-decade horizon, it's interesting to ask the question of when will the pendulum swing back? Because throughout history, there's been periods of more surveillance, more centralized control, but it has never kind of ended up over there. It's always going to have a swung back when, because it went too far. So, so this is one thing that's important to highlight, for instance, when voice over IP was rolled out, when Skype was rolled out, telcos were really desperate to stop it. And you had a lot of regulation which meant that initially telco regulators said that, well, if you're going to allow for a phone call over the internet, over IP, the device you're using have to have a backup battery. And the call you're making, it'll have to be a 911 button. 
So every phone had to have a backup battery and you had to have the ability to call 911 even without the SIM card. They were trying to enforce that type of regulation on video calls. And that turned out to be inconsistent with kind of the reality of how video calls work, right? And I think what is ironic is that a lot of the regulation that has existed prior to the crypto regulation now coming has actually been fairly well-suited to be applied to crypto. You just need uh, lawyers willing to interpret how to apply it. The disaster that is about to happen right now is the tailored regulation. The MECA regulation here in the EU, other tailored regulation is just completely getting it wrong. They're trying to talk about a hosted wallet and custodial wallet and self-hosted, and they don't get the technology at all, and they come with the lenses of the old system and try to create special regulation for crypto. A lot of that will fail, and then there will be kind of iterations back and forth, and, and then I believe that the geographies that are finding the right balance will thrive. Others will then be followers, and I think it will work itself out uh, long term. But uh, so, what's the long term game from here for Arcane over the next few years? Yeah, and no, so as I said, right now it's all about bringing our services together on the unified platform, rolling that out to our own users, use that experience from basically dog fooding our own solution to then opening up our APIs to third parties so that others can build on our systems and offer our underlying services to their clients. But also the flip side of that, sell to our users. So that's the main focus. And in that process, staying on top of both the market development, trying to figure out what we're blindsided to. I think, especially for the regulated activities, we are focusing on the European market. We clearly see that... So this is another interesting observation, especially from a lot of VCs and a lot of investors who have been used to the tech space and where it's the winner takes all. Like you have Facebook, you have Google, you have these giants. And they kind of assume the same dynamic for crypto service providers. But if you look at finance, you don't have one bank that is dominant. Yes, you have a lot of really, really big multinational banks. You also have a lot of really big regional banks. And even in a tiny country like Norway, like we are 5 million people in Norway. And I think we have like around 150 different banks. Not all of them making a lot of money, but you have a, a power law distribution. And I think crypto has a combination of both. I think when it comes especially to the protocols and the tokens, you'll really see super strong network effects. And you'll see some few dominant projects being much more important than the others. You'll have a long tail all projects that are complementary that are actually doing something else that shouldn't be called cryptocurrencies. They are a bonus token, less to do with Bitcoin and more to do with uh, air miles points. Also in the service provider space, I do believe, especially since this will interact with regulation, that you'll see much more fragmented picture. And you already start to see some really big US players having more than enough to keep up with the different state level regulations. You have some really big Southeast Asian players. What is really missing and where it's a big vacuum is Europe. There's no clear European leaders. And that's the vacuum we are going to fill, or at least trying to. All right. That's awesome. Well, let's leave off there for today. And what is the best way for any listeners that would like to get a hold of you or learn more about Arcane? They can go to arcane.no. They can also find there the link to our investor page. We are listed on NASDAQ in Stockholm. They can check out our quarterly presentations, our financials there. You can follow me on Twitter. I guess it's easier for you to add a link somewhere than me to yep. allow Twitter to just auto-generate that a couple of years back. And <laughs> it's not the best handle. Yeah. So Twitter, Arcane.no. All right. Well, I appreciate Tarvin to coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Joe Roberts Show.